Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics on the podcast channel. We're excited that you're joining and tuning in to us. Today's guest is a friend of mine that I met through. We met through a common apologetics group, if you will. He's a family man. He's a graduate of Summit Bible College with a bachelor's of theology with an emphasis in Christian apologetics. He lives in Montana, roots for the Oregon Ducks, but the San Francisco 49ers follower. This guy's all over the place, and I love it. Today's guest is Brandon Gunderson. So, Brandon, I just appreciate you joining with us today. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me, man. It's really a humbling experience to be here, and I'm really honored, to be honest. You know, this is a video, or not a video, this is an audio interview we've been trying to do for quite some time now. And then uh, with our move personally from South Dakota back to the South, and praise God for that. But also just with COVID pandemic and just health and just everything going on, we've been trying to do this for a while. So today I'm actually really excited to get this topic underway. But before we jump into today's topic, uh, could you just enlighten us a little bit? Tell us a little bit about yourself, background, ministry, anything you'd like to share with our audience. Sure, I would lo- really love to talk about a couple of things. First of all, like you said, I meant, you mentioned I'm a family man. Uh, my wife and I will be actually celebrating uh, 13 years of marriage uh, coming up on the 17th of this month. Uh, we have two boys, uh, Ethan and David. Uh, Ethan is uh, nine and David uh, just turned uh, four and uh, David actually will be starting preschool this year so it's kind of uh, and with the whole thing with the schools reopening it's been pretty hectic and that and um, but yeah I mean I just I have a really strong strong passion I've had a strong passion for uh, obviously uh, Christian apologetics um, for, for many years before I even met my wife. Um, I was kind of a really emotional person. I actually, uh, got saved, uh, through a drug addiction that I had for years. Um, there's just a lot of, lot of stuff in my life that, uh, God has really used to propel me forward into ministry. And I just really feel like I've, I've been called to the front lines. I just haven't been able to actuate that uh, specifically, um, in, you know, in a way that I wanted to, things have, you know, have kind of worked out in ways that I thought wouldn't work out. And, uh, but God, and it's all God's timing as far as, you know, like this interview, we've had a lot of setbacks, uh, things have happened in our lives specifically for both of us. Um, but I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to do this now. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about, morality. We're going to be talking about morality, postmodernism, things of that sort. Uh, The topic is actually called Moral Relativism and the Necessity of God. And if you actually have no idea what that is, that's perfectly fine because Brandon's going to shed some much needed light on this topic for us today. And so I have a series of questions, Brandon, and I know we've talked a little bit about this before. I just want to jump right into it. Uh, first, can you explain what the term relativism means and how does it relate to society and Christian theology? Uh, again, I really appreciate the question. Uh, I, you know, obviously I'm not a professional debater or anything like that, but this is obviously something I've studied for a very long time. Um, but relativism actually is a, is a worldview uh, that supports the absence of absolutes at its simplest form. Um, you, know, you hear it all the time, man. Uh, live your truth. Uh, this is something that's very popular in our culture right now and has been for some time. But this is basically an attempt to downgrade truth uh, to personal taste, like going to a buffet. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous if you think about it. But, 
But yeah, relativism in our society has become uh, very popular because it, it comes under uh, the guise of tolerance. It gives uh, like off a pseudo-inclusiveness. Um, this worldview has become very enchanting because of this. Uh, in inclusiveness intrinsically is not bad, but it's simply fallacious to believe uh, all ideas are equally valid. It's unfortunate <clears throat> because our culture equates their opinion with their own intrinsic value. Uh, when we disagree with them, it's, it's as if we are attacking their, their intrinsic value as human beings. Um, Christian theology poses a huge problem to this worldview, hence the indifference towards Christianity and the rise of secularism, because even though we believe every human being has intrinsic moral value, uh, we don't believe that all ideas are equally valid, even though human beings are equally, equally valid. Now, you had made a mention to a particular phrase that I, I really keyed in on. Live your truth. And I think through the course of this interview, we're going to see how detrimental that one statement, that one phrase, that one philosophy for someone to live their life by, how damaging it could be because one thing we got to really understand is what is truth and if we're looking at truth as relative truth is being subjective and there's no absolutes then by me living my particular truth could be in essence damaging or hurting another person uh, if they don't subscribe to my truth but I'm sure you're gonna hit on that uh, much later in the interview but what would you say through your research and I appreciate your honesty and your humility and everything uh, as far as opening up, and I really appreciate you just having the research, having the study, being that Berean that has a burden to get to the heart of this matter and to study it. And so through your study and your research, could you explain what you believe begun the rise of relativism actually in America, and was it post part of the postmodern uh, movement? Uh, before we move on to that, I actually want to address the, the, the term postmodern um, because... There's actually, uh, I would say it's more accurate to say post-truth um, because the, the idea of modernism does always move forward and never actually root something or abide in something. And so we actually, for example, we have pockets of people who don't believe in anything objective. And this is not what's happening in the country at large, okay? Uh, the majority of our secular culture still believes in the objective value of things like the sciences and engineering. There's just a significant indifference to religion and ethics. But when we get to the really, I feel like when you get down in the research, we as Americans are simply in the wake of what happened in the age of enlightenment of the 17th to 19th century Europe. There was a, a significant revival of philosophy in the sciences during this time. And so began the questioning of God's existence, right? So the, the agenda at its core was to kill the idea of God. Europe is almost completely secularized, and our American culture is actually on, a, on the brink and on a fast track to becoming the same thing. It's definitely true and everything. I appreciate you actually defining postmodernism and everything because that's, that's key to actually going further into this interview. And so as far as the rise of relativism in America, uh, are you believing that's just because of the influence of the last... 100 or so, 150 years of postmodernism and what it brought to the philosophy? Yeah, I do. I, 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 obviously, it's not the only thing, but I think it, it's had a significant influence. And like I said, we're just in the wake of that. Now, through my studying and everything, I, I've heard people use the term relative, and I've heard people use the term subjective, uh, as, as well as objective and absolute. 
Could you explain what the difference is between something being relative and subjective or relative or subjective? And then what is the difference between objective and absolute? That's a very good question. Uh, it's important that uh, we define terms uh, because otherwise we find there will be, uh, as you well know, uh, major discrepancies when we communicate, right? So even though on the surface these, these terms seem to mean the same thing, there are in fact clear lines between them. Uh, for, for example, relative, to say something is relative, uh, we are establishing a worldview that is in direct opposition to absolutes, okay? Uh, so, but with subjective, it's a much broader term because uh, this can blur the line even further. The reason being uh, the influence of emotional states, personal tastes or opinions, and subjectivism seemingly affirms a relativistic worldview. Now, with objective, uh, this is a direct opposite opposite of subjective okay so because it means that there are truths that that are, are independent of our feelings uh, and opinions and desires right now objective goodness can have varying degrees uh, such as the difference between a good dog a good man and a good god uh, this leads to the next question which refers to absolutes which is true no matter what this no matter what the circumstances like god being good right so uh, so we got those differences in those, in those three things. There's a difference between, like I said, between a good dog, a good man, a good God, right? And God being good is an absolute thing. He's always good. He's all, he's omnibenevolent, right? That's pretty good explanation right there. And specifically when you're looking at objective and absolutes, and I've always wondered is, uh, because absolutes would be uh, transcendent throughout time, culture, language, everything. It's like mathematics. Mathematics is an absolute truth that no matter if you're doing 2 plus 2 now, if you're doing 2 plus 2 in Egypt, or if you're doing 2 plus 2 back in 3000 BC, it's always going to come out to the number 4. And so there's an absolute truth there. And so I appreciate you explaining you know the difference between relative subjective objective and absolute like you said is is very key to define terms uh really not only when people get into debates or arguments and again people think arguments are a negative word a negative thing but we argue all the time whenever we're just giving a position for something on what we believe or what we don't believe but like you said, if we don't define the terms properly in communication, there's a lot of miscommunication that happens. For instance, if I use the word spring, if I don't have proper context, nobody knows if I'm talking about the season, a metal coil, uh, a verb meaning to jump or whatever the case is. And so it's very important. And that goes to show uh, also there's something called the omnipotence paradox that I was baited into a few years back and since then I've learned and I've studied it and, and uh, figured it out but one of the things that atheists and really the those that are very cynical secularists they'll want to go and talk about the omnipotence paradox and basically with the omnipotence paradox is the fact of can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it well if God is omnipotent and if God can do anything then God's not God, God's not real. If he can make something, he can't actually left. And what's in interesting about that is a lot of times we believe we understand what omnipotence means, but we don't clearly understand it from a biblical sense and a theological sense, and we bait ourselves into a, a discussion about that without properly defining the terms, and specifically in that case, omnipotence. So I really appreciate you uh, explaining that aspect of it. 
do you think there's really any damage if someone is really a relative or a subjective-minded individual? Does it really cause much harm if someone wants to believe relativism or subjectivity? Yeah, so if you believe there are no absolutes, then you're essentially believing no one has ultimate significance or value. And we can see the, the ripple effect that can cause. This will, uh, this will naturally create feelings of hopelessness. Um, and this in turn will diminish any moral obligation or duty. Uh, being subjective-minded can possibly be more dangerous because feelings become our truth, which changes based off our circumstances. You already see this with increases in public mass shootings and suicides. So, yes, I think it's very dangerous. Mm. Feelings change based upon the truth that we are subscribing or the truth changing based upon those those feelings. So you had made mention as far as no value if there are no absolutes. It's kind of funny because whenever someone were to get into a conversation or a dialogue with an atheist that holds this type of view and they say that there are no absolutes, one of the first questions we need to be going back and asking them is, are you absolutely sure about that statement? Because just by making that statement alone, they're claiming at least something is absolute. And then if something's absolute, they have to be able to give a rationale for where that absolute statement comes from. So Dr. Frank Turk reveals that while some things may be relative to a time period or relative to a particular situation, all one needs to do is provide evidence of just one thing. One thing being objective or one thing being absolute in order to argue for a creator. Can you give possible examples of things in our culture today here in America or in life in general that are objective and absolute that we could use to show the necessity of an intelligent mind of a creator? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that our secular culture gives objective value to the sciences and engineering, right? It's, uh, it's really an inescapable idea. So, uh, for instance, C.S. Lewis said that those who don't believe in a real right and wrong will go against go against that a moment later when someone takes their chair now that's a comedic you know example but it, it denotes a significant truth doesn't it despite it being a you know comedic reference it, it definitely it definitely underlines a deeper truth uh, even the definition of relativism gives us an absolute by stating that everything is relative like you had mentioned you know when someone says there is no absolutes they're making an absolute statement so it's self-defeating so, and then, uh, the other thing I was thinking of was, you know, my kids, they, they love, they love obviously watching Disney movies and I obviously watch it with them. And I get really deeply involved with some of the things that are, are said and taught. And, and there's some biblical things that, you know, parallels and, uh, but cultural parallels too. So for instance, like Olaf and Frozen 2 said that there's nothing, nothing is permanent. Right. And that is in itself a self-defeating statement. Right. No, that's true, because even that statement would apparently not be permanent, according to that view. I love Olaf, and I can't believe you brought him in here. I appreciate that. As far as uh, objective truth is concerned, and the fact of truth being truth regardless and, and seen for people uh, through the experiences through life, do you believe that objective truth was... Uh, something that was created philosophically, or was objective truth something that was discovered, and why? Well, <laughs> if, uh, if objective truth was created, then that contradicts its objectivity, doesn't it? Objective truth becomes relative based off social conditioning or biological evolution, which we hear all the time from Christian apologists, right? By the way, objective truth is not undermined uh, by these things, but in fact infer affirms that objective truth is discovered, 
even if the objective truths were somehow floating in the air and were picked out by subjective agendas, the fact that the objective truth was floating there presents us with the truth that exists independently of the subjective agenda. Now, it would be safe to assume that you and I would both argue that the reason of the cause for objective truth and absolute truth would be God himself, specifically the God of the Holy Bible. Uh, how would you be able to argue that or articulate that truth? Well, I mean, laws written or written for certain states can vary from other states, even countries, but there are laws that are put in place globally that criminalize murdering people and then degrees of punishment uh, significantly heighten, especially when children are involved, right? So the, this law is created uh, based off an innate moral obligation to an absolute moral truth. Knowing that that it's absolute and independent of anything relative uh, or subjective, it's an exclamation mark on the philosophical truth that an absolute law giver would be necessary for absolute morality to exist. And that's, that makes me think of, you, you talked a little bit about the moral law and how that's really intrinsic. And I think Frank Turk, I've heard him say this time or two, time or two is uh, you can go to different cultures, different countries, and, and no one would subscribe to the notion that torturing innocent babies for uh, would be fun, or you don't torture innocent babies for fun. And so I think that definitely, like you said, does speak to the heart of the uh, intrinsicness of the moral law that's written on our consciences, bearing that witness. Another thing that I think of as well is, is this intrinsic desire to worship something. Uh, if you look at all these different nations, you look at all these cultures, no matter if it's uh, an advanced culture, or if it's a third world country, or if it's a tribe that wasn't discovered yet, or was fairly recently discovered, Every culture seeks to desire to worship something. And different cultures worship different things, but it doesn't take away from the fact that there is this desire of worship. And I would argue, and I believe you would argue as well, that that's that God-shaped hole that's left within each and every one of us that only Jesus Christ of Scriptures can fill. Now, do you believe... Now, go ahead. Believe... What was that? Well, I was just going to say, you know, because I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis, and I just wanted to, you know, comment on what you said, because C.S. Lewis said that if there's nothing in this world that can fulfill us, then we're made for another one, right? So uh, the, the whole thing with God-shaped whole, I mean, sounds cliche, but it's, it's, a, it's a significant truth that, that has stood the test of time, right? I mean, there's nothing in this world that can fulfill our, our basic needs, our spiritual needs, and our base. obviously our basic needs are, have to be met by food and water and things like that so there's always this this reliance on something else amen amen i could tell right off the bat that you are a huge c.s lewis fan uh and so i can definitely tell uh he's pretty much the one main uh individual you reference and that's awesome because not many people today really know much about c.s lewis or any of his writings but keeping on the discussion of god and what god has to say about truth do you believe that God has anything to say about relativism, whether he's actually for it or against it? And rather than just articulating our our views, is there anything within Scripture you can point to that says God is or he is not for relativism? Oh, yeah. So even though, I mean, the term relativism isn't directly used scripturally because obviously it's a more modern uh, terminology. Um, but there is one Scripture where God blows this worldview completely out of the water. 
which is in John 14, 6, uh, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, right? You, you know, you, and you bring up that verse and everything, you know, I'm glad that you did, because a, a lot of people want to claim Christianity and charge Christianity with being exclusive. It's a clearly exclusive religion, whereas they would argue that a lot of other religions are very inclusive, but I would argue differently. Uh, I think it's Ravi Zacharias that's on record as saying that Christianity is really the only religion that has exclusive truth. Like you said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And either Jesus is making an absolute statement and he's accurate in that, or like C.S. Lewis said, uh, we have to figure out whether he's liar, lunatic, or Lord. And so there is definitely an exclusive truth to that statement of Jesus. However, comma, there is an inclusive love. So Christianity has an exclusive truth with an inclusive love, meaning that anybody, anywhere, no matter ethnicity, no matter age, creed, location, they can all come to the cross at the same uh, really uneven playing field, if you will, sin-covered bodies and everything, but all have that opportunity for salvation. And that's one thing that I just love, love, love about Jesus Christ, that it doesn't matter if you're black, white, yellow, red, anything. He is for them all. You see, many people in today's society, they don't like to be told that homosexuality is wrong. And we're really starting to get into some practical aspects of a relativistic truth. Like you said, live your truth. What's true for you may not be true for me, and so on and so forth. So whether it's homosexuality, whether it's abortion, or pedophilia, which is a hot-button topic of, unfortunately, today... In trying to reveal the actual objective standard of sanctity of marriage and sanctity of life, how would you approach the situation to help another see their error in their thinking if they believed relativism? Yeah, so uh, as Christian apologists, we both know in most cases this is never, never uh, an intellectual barrier that creates these errors in their thinking, um, but an emotional one, right, which can have uh, varying degrees uh, which is why there's no cookie-cutter answer to this moral or ethical dilemma. Uh, we must tread carefully, um, hence the dangers of relative or subjective mindedness. Uh, we, we can get into scientific data we have on homosexuality and the overwhelming evidence that shows no one is born a homosexual, uh, but how does, that help, how does that help them psychologically or emotionally, right? So if they, if they genuinely want to debate the issue intellectually, we must be ready to give a defense, right? First uh, Peter three fifteen, but also be ready to show them grace and truth and love. Uh, and I actually want to shout out to a ministry that I, I'm uh, that I'm connected with out of uh, Bakersfield, California, called His Way Out Ministries. Uh, the founder himself uh, was a practicing homosexual um, who had contracted HIV, and God healed him. It's an amazing story. You actually should uh, check it out on your own time. And anybody out there listening should check out his ministry. It's an amazing testament for, of God's power. And what was the name of that ministry again? I want to write it down. Uh, his Way Out Ministries. Wonderful. Thank you, man. I'm make note of that. I'm going to go ahead and take a look at it and put a link in the descri description as well. You were talking about that apologetics, you know, like anybody that's familiar with it, it, it 
it's very easy to fall into the trap of believing that apologetics is purely an academic uh, dialogue. It's an academic debate. It's who's got the most knowledge, who's got the most convincing argument. And I think you and I would both agree that apologetics is very much a spiritual battlefield as well. And I, I just, I love Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12, that one of the ways that I, I believe that we could go ahead and help people see, like we could argue all the day, all day long, like you said, using uh, research, studies, statistics, whatever the case is. But at the end of the day, that may or may not convince anybody. But the Word of God says uh, that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so really, I would encourage anybody out there uh, dealing with this. And like Brandon said, uh, a lot of times it's an emotional battleground that there may be some things that they went through. And like what Ravi Zacharias really did is he didn't get to the heart of the question. He got to the heart of the questioner and to really answer the heart of the person asking the question. So trying to figure out how to go ahead and do that, but also realize that it's not by our abilities. It's not by our uh, intellect. It's not by our persuasion. It's really by the Word of God and the Spirit's conviction that will draw, that will go ahead and uh, rebuke, that will go ahead and encourage. We're merely just uh, vessels being used in that regard. You see, uh, a lot of times when a Christian tries to actually help another one overcome a bad behavior or, or someone tries to help someone overcome a bad habit, we're being charged with being intolerant. Like, for instance, if if I had a friend that was in homosexuality and I'm trying to help this individual get freed from the bondage that is homosexuality, a lot of times, whether by the individual or the onlookers, being charged as being an intolerant person or even a bigot. How would you respond to that? It's, it's interesting. You know, obviously there's no cookie cutter answer to that one either, but I typically, learning from, you know, professional debaters and things like that, it's important that we use other, you know, someone else's argument against them. And I, I use this kind of as a, as a, as a, a lighthearted thing. But I, I typically, I've said like, oh, well, if I'm being intolerant, then you're being intolerant of my intolerance. So it's self-defeating, right? And then, uh, so again, it goes back to defining terms and how important it is. Because we, when we look at the word tolerance, the we need to look at the classical view of tolerance right and that's that that everybody is equally valid because of their intrinsic moral value but that ideas itself are not right so if i said hey i'm gonna go build you know uh this house or you know on uh on sand right in floor on the florida coast uh, made out of uh straw I don't think that would be, you know, according to tolerance or relativistic worldview, that would be okay. You'd be like, well, that's your truth. And that obviously you see the implications of and how dangerous that is. Man, I love that statement that you just said. There's value of the person regardless of the truth. And so no matter uh, how off their truth claim may be or their philosophy or their worldview, and even if we don't find value in it and we believe it's totally anti-God and anti-Christian, there's still value in that person. I love that statement, man. Uh, it, it's funny you brought up the contradictory statements too because a lot of times we'll hear, you know, you shouldn't judge me. Well, again, you've heard it said before that 
just by making that statement, they're judging the person's judgment. And so in essence, they're committing the same problem that they're charging the other person with doing. But also in the other regards, a lot of people don't have a problem being judged positively or being judged fairly. They just always want to throw out this judge not lest he be judged when it's something that they don't like. And uh, another thing I want to go ahead and sort of uh, promote as well is a book uh, I had gotten a while back, read it a couple times, a lot of notes in it and everything. It really helps navigate the conversation to sort of break down the worldview, the foundations that somebody stands upon. And it's called Conversational Evangelism. And it's a wonderful book out there. It's by the Geislers. And uh, it just goes ahead and shows not only do we look at breaking, cracking the foundation, but we replace it with the foundation of Christ. And so anybody out there that wants a practical book on how to actually maneuver questions, the art of active listening and things like that, I definitely check that out. So what do you believe would be the strongest argument against relativism from a societal perspective, merely societal? Well, uh, it goes, I mean... It seems repetitive, but I mean, when you when you're living out your own truth, it's inevitable, okay, that your subjective agenda will clash with someone else's agenda. It's it's inevitable. I don't think we can actually truly cultivate any deep and meaningful relationships if we continually try to li- just live out our own self fulfillment. I mean, obviously, you see the the danger in that, right? You know, and definitely do. And, and you had said uh, it, it sounds kind of repetitive, and I'm totally with you on that. And that's because, you know, I believe that this aspect, this to- topic of relativism is so prevalent in today's society and that one of the keys to learning is repetition and the fact that in so many different ways, it's vital that we can show how is re- relativism failing in this area in that area in this regard in that regard because the more we go ahead and beat this if you will metaphorical dead horse the more we can get just more information practically out about relativism and its fallacies so as far as society is concerned definitely what about theologically what's the strongest arguments against relativism from a theological perspective yeah so like we mentioned earlier in the interview, uh, relativism can, relativism cannot it cannot coexist with a biblical worldview because uh, theologically we believe in absolute truth. So, which again is in direct opposition to a rel- relativistic worldview. I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean, if you're a Christian and you claim to have a relativistic worldview, if you're a Christian and you claim that your truth isn't necessarily their truth, and say, okay, on the stance of abortion, pro-life or pro-choice. If you're a Christian and you're really not standing up for pro-life in the fact that God had created sanctity of life from conception all the way to birth, then you really have a relativistic worldview and you don't truly understand the theology that is of God. And so I totally uh, would argue and just ask you to really look at some of the statements that we're making, some of the views and the truth claims that we hold, to see if they stand, like Brandon was saying, to the absolute truth of the Word of God. With the biggest one being, like he had pointed out, John chapter 14, verse number 6, Jesus says, I am what? The way. I am the truth and I am the life. 
that there is no other life found other than Jesus Christ himself. There is no other truth other than the truth of Jesus Christ. We're told by Paul in the book of Colossians that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible Father. So if you ever want to know what really the Father, the first person of the Trinity looks like, we look at the life of Christ because he lived and he exhibited all the essence, all the characteristics and traits that is the triune God. And then we look at the way. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And we talked about C.S. Lewis a lot today, but again, I just want to go ahead and say it again. At the end of the day, we're all going to have to come to the agreement of what is or who is Jesus. Is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he actually the Lord? And we're all going to make that decision at one point in time in this life, and we're all going to find the truth of that decision that we made after this life. This life is not the only life to live. And so with relativism, the rise of relativism and the fact that people can have their own truth contrary to what we even see within reality has very detrimental effects not just on the individual but also on society and even within the Christian worldview because that's why we have a lot of errors, a lot of heresies, a lot of doctrines of demons creeping into the church because nobody really wants to stand on absolute truth or objective morality anymore. Brandon, I thank you for being on here and everything. Is there anything else you'd like to file, uh, mention before we actually close this interview? Yeah, actually, I, I just wanted to reiterate, you know, because relativ relativism, in my opinion, um, is and has been uh, one of the biggest threats to establishing a biblical worldview. It's, it's literally shaping our culture right now uh, and, uh, when we should be the ones doing it. Um, and we're actually, more specifically, God doing it. Um, but we are as ambassadors, we are as representatives, and we need to get off the sidelines, man. Um, I think it is it is one of the main active ingredients in diluting the truth. So, and too many Christians, I feel, in, in my observations personally, are retreating um, in the shadows, man. They, when we should be a beacon on the hill, illuminating the valley below, uh, planting that flag of truth in every in the very secular soul of our culture. Um, I mean, we talked about, you know, the, you know, the age of enlightenment, how, the, you know, basically you got the idea of the, of killing the idea of God and that in turn get, you know, killed the idea of truth. And now we're, you know, like DK Matthew said on uh, CRI podcast the other day, he said, uh, that's, then now we got the death of words and, uh, and the, why it's important that we define terms in which we talked about in this interview uh, but you know, you got these, a lot of these pastors not dealing with these things. You got people at the culture right now, like, uh, you know, Antifa and, uh, the BLM movement. It's very controversial to even talk about those things, but, but the moniker itself of the black lives matter is obviously, uh, true within itself. Right. But the movement itself is a Marxist movement. If we look at, deep into it, so is Antifa and their whole agenda is to deconstruct, uh, our culture and to, so something else can rise up, but they they go in the name of uh, the word social justice and people follow it because it sounds good, but they're not actually defining what it really means. And you know, that's the point of importance of words. I mean, it, it, it's life or death, man. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that, brother. 
So that's Brandon Gunderson today talking about moral relativism and the necessity of God. Without God, we have no bearing, no foothold, no stance, no foundation to stand on any truth. But we know because there is a God, there is a Savior, there is something called absolute and objective truth that we can stand and put our pen on. And if you're a Christian listening to this, you would do very well to go ahead and stand up for that truth with meekness, with love, with grace. So, Brandon, again, I thank you for just uh, being part of this interview. Go ahead and see if we can't get you on again at a later date. And for those of you that are listening, again, if you check out the links uh, in, the, in the link block below, I'm going to try to have His Way Out uh, ministry website out there as well as conversational apologetics or conversational evangelism if you'd be so inclined to go ahead and get it. So until next time, I thank you for checking us out. And God bless.